This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards. If you're looking to unload your collection and maybe turn some of that old cardboard into cash, Greg Morris can help. Greg's always buying collections of vintage basketball, baseball, football, or hockey cards. If you have modern or ultra-modern graded cards, he'll buy those as well. On top of all that, Greg takes cards on consignment. Go to gregmorriscards.com to sell them your cards, or you can email joe at gregmorriscards.com directly. What's up, everyone? This is episode 152 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. I want to start off by thanking everyone that messaged me about last week's conversation with Jarrett, aka Celtic Super Collector. Seems like you guys really enjoyed that one, and quite frankly, I did too. And after we were done uh, recording and after I'd posted everything, he posted a want list of like 18 Celtics autos that um, he still needs. And uh, you know what? I want to try and help him track these things down. So I reached out to a few people that I think might have some leads. Maybe something happens. Maybe it doesn't. Who knows? But I respect the hunt. And I want to do what I can to help Jared out. So if you know where some of those autographs might be, let's see if we can help find them. Okay, as for this week's episode, I have a jam-packed show for you. I know that phrase probably gets thrown around a little too much, but this is, in fact, a full show. I'm going to start off today. I've got a few pieces of mail that I've been sitting on for quite a while. It's time to talk about them. I've got another installment of Collector Classifieds queued up and ready to go. And then today's main segment is my eighth listener mailbag. I always enjoy doing these. I feel like the questions keep getting better each and every time. And this time there were 40 questions, 40 questions. And there would have been more, but I had to finally disable the comments. I've never run into that before. Um, now, there was, realistically, there's no way I could fit 40 questions on this show. So I answered 20 of them here. And then I answered another 20 on my YouTube channel. I busted my tail this week. You basically get two episodes for the price of one, but I'm not complaining. It was fun putting all that together. So make sure you bookmark that YouTube channel for later on so you can hear the second half. Okay, enough chatter. On to the mail. The first piece of mail I want to talk about today is a 2004-2005 Skybox EXL Credentials Futures card of David Harrison numbered to 10. That sounds familiar, right? Those of you that are regular listeners of the show might remember that I was generously gifted one of these less than two months ago. And the story on that one was that it popped up in Australia. I asked for a little bit of help in purchasing it and getting it shipped to me. And an Australian listener named Grayson just went above and beyond and just bought it outright and sent it to me. So it was an incredible gesture. I'll never forget it. Once again, thank you so much, Grayson. Um, So anyway, I was looking back at the notes for that segment, and I couldn't help but laugh because at one point I said, you know, this is a card that I probably won't ever see again. And I honestly believe that. You know, it's number 211. It's from 2004. That stuff doesn't pop up often. 
you know, those of you that collect that era, you know. Well, lo and behold, several months later, another copy shows up on eBay. And I told myself, if this stays reasonable, you know, I wouldn't mind having a duplicate. So I think I ended up winning it for something like $20 shipped. I was very happy about that. And um, it was shipped using eBay standard envelope program. So it kind of just disappeared for 10 days, which is a little bit concerning. It's happened to me before. Um, I kept telling myself to be patient, although deep down I'm like, man, where is this card? It's still a little bit unnerving. Nonetheless, it did eventually show up. And here I thought I wouldn't see another one pop up anytime soon, if at all. And I was wrong. But in some cases, it feels good to be wrong, right? Okay. Next up, another Pacers card. It's going to be a lot of them. Um, I received a 2003-2004 Topps Contemporary Collection gold card of Jermaine O'Neal numbered to 25. Now, out of all the Topps gold cards, I think this is one that's often overlooked. And um, that doesn't mean undervalued necessarily, because some of them can be really expensive. But um, I got this Jermaine O'Neal for like $15 shipped. And uh, anyway, I think people just forget about this set because it was a one-off, and which is a shame because it had some amazing-looking base cards. There were some Easter eggs in the set, kind of um, like a, um, what was it, an inscription set, an inscription autograph set, so some really good stuff. But um, regardless, this set features in-game action photos. It's got thick gold borders. Um, there's a lot more gold material on this card than there is, say, you know, 2003 Topps Chrome Gold. It also has a much nicer shine, in my opinion. So um, I got the Jermaine O'Neal, and this was the last card I needed for the Pacers team set, which is only three cards. It's Ron Artest, Al Harrington, and Jermaine O'Neal. I have no idea why Reggie Miller wasn't included in the set. It would have been nice to have that. I probably wouldn't have been able to afford it anyway. Um, but anyway, you know, so I've got all three of them. If I have time, I'm planning on making a video that compares some of the various gold cards from 2003 or different golds from that era. If that sounds like something that might interest you, feel free to let me know. Until then, you can find a picture of this on one of my social media handles, probably the Deadshots Cards one, but who knows, I might put it on Wax Museum. All right, the third thing I received is, is something I definitely didn't have in my collection, and this will serve as a little foreshadowing for next week's episode as well. It's a media pass from January 17th's Pacers-Clippers game in Los Angeles. Now, how would I wind up with something like that, you might ask? Well, about a week and a half ago, I recorded an episode with Brian, aka sports card photographer on Instagram, and he had just shot that game. And we talked about it a little bit, among other things. There's a lot of good conversation in there. Um, and after we were done recording, he sent me a picture of the past and he asked if I was interested in adding it to my collection. Well, I was, so he sent it to me free of charge and it makes for a really nice way for me to remember our conversation, which like I alluded to earlier, you'll be hearing in the near future as well. Okay. The last package I want to talk about today is one I'm pretty excited about. You might've even seen it already on social media last week. This was one I could not hold off on posting. It's a 2009-2010 Topps Legendary Laundry Tag 101 of Nate Tiny Archibald. And this is the entire sand knit tag from one of his old uniforms. Now, this is from an era when tag cards weren't as plentiful as they are now. And, um, you know, my thinking is 
We probably wouldn't have got this set to begin with, save for the fact that Topps was losing their license and they had to kind of liquidate whatever relics they had left if they wanted to go out with a bang, which they did, and I appreciate that. Upper Deck, they did the same thing too. You know, we'll see if Panini will follow suit. But anyway, this Nate Archibald tag is a card that's been on eBay for a long time. I was ready to make a strong offer for it when it was first listed back, I think it was first listed maybe even in 2020 as far as recently goes. Um, the seller told me via private message, though, that the Rodman had sold for like 4000 and he thought Archibald would do the same, and I was no way near that. So I figured I, you know, maybe I can wait this guy out, maybe someday he'll list it. And that's eventually what he did as a 10-day auction, which seemed like torture, but at the same time, it gave me a little bit of time to get everything in order to make a serious run, so... You know, I was complaining about 10-day auctions on my Twitter, but it probably enabled me to get this card, believe it or not. So um, when this card showed up for auction, the picture wasn't great. I thought it might be from a blue Kansas City Kings jersey. Once I got it in the mail, though, I realized it wasn't dark blue material around the tag, that it was just dark background that Tops had adhered it to. Um, so with that being said, I think it's safe to assume this is from a white Kansas City Kings jersey because the only other Archibald relics I can find that Tops made were smaller white pieces in 2007-2008 Bowman Sterling and I don't ever remember seeing any patch cards come from those so for all I know it could be a pair of shorts but I doubt it because the tag says size 40 and that's generally not a number that you associate with someone that's nicknamed Tiny. So there were a couple reasons why I really wanted this card. Number one, I've always loved this set and admired it from afar. I have a Brandon Rush, but I wanted an old-timer. And I know I passed on a JoJo White a couple years ago, and I still regret that. And then number two, I needed a Nate Archibald Prime Relic for my 75th anniversary project. I think I've mentioned it on here in passing, but I'm trying to get a nice patch card or a Prime Relic for all 76 players on that list, at least the ones that have one. And um, Nate doesn't have a lot to choose from. He's got a limited logos number to 50 that uses a Kings jersey. He's got some stuff in Exquisite and SP Game Used from 2009. As far as I can recall, that's it. So I was willing to spend a little extra to make sure I could secure this one. So like I said, I posted that on my social media already. I also featured it in a YouTube video from last week. So make sure to check that out if it sounds like something that might interest you. Hey everyone, this is Kyle Dixon. I'm on Twitter at WKD1223. I collect former Arkansas Razorbacks, and right now I'm trying to put together a 1993 Topps Finest Basketball Refractor set. Follow me on Twitter and uh, let's talk basketball cards. Okay, real quick note about the Collector Classifieds. Once again, I hope you guys are enjoying those. Some of you might remember Nathan, who goes by AZ Trading Cards on Twitter. He was looking for obscure Phoenix Suns cards and the 2000-2001 Stadium Club game jersey cards of Suns players, and that's what he talked about in his little spot on the show. Well, since then, he's picked up at least two of those jersey cards, and it's my understanding that at least one of them was a direct result of his spot on the show, so I'm very happy to hear that, and I hope it's the first success of many for this year. All right, before I move into the listener mailbag segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to 
waxmuseumpodcast.com. Click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo, and now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, I've got quite a few questions to get through today, and good ones too, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in with question number one, which comes from My Player Collections. He asked, if you were to jump into the hobby today without any real background, and today was day one, how would you maneuver through the fields? What would be your strategy? Well, if I didn't have any background, I would say my approach would be real clumsy, I'd probably end up latching onto some of the more polished uh, mainstream content just because that's the easiest stuff to get to. So I'm going to change course here a little bit and tell you three things I think new people should do. Um, number one, you absolutely have to ask questions, and that goes for anything in life. If you want to learn something new, you have to ask questions. Look for people that are willing to chat with you. They're out there. For example, if I was new and I had any inkling that I wanted to be a Pacers collector, uh, I'd find another Pacers collector on Instagram and message them to introduce myself. If things go smooth, I'd probably ask if I could have a conversation on the phone. I know that sounds kind of strange. I know that approach isn't for everyone and that can get kind of weird, but I think that would be a great help. And then if people do spend a lot of time helping you out in some way, maybe you could compensate them a little for their time uh, or at least offer. I'm not saying um, that I expect that. Or anything, but even offering to do that goes a long way and shows you put some sort of value on the information being shared. Uh, the second thing I would do is take a series like uh, Cardboard Chronicles on YouTube, and I would watch it start to finish. I think over the course of that show's tenure, Josh was able to bring in a number of different backgrounds and perspectives. It's nice to see how other people collect. Even if you don't replicate their exact approach, you can kind of pick and choose what might work for you. The third thing I think new people should do is go out of their way to attend a card show in person and give yourself a budget, something like $50. Even if you have a lot more to spend, that first time you go, just make it $50. Save the rest of the money for when you have a little more insight that you, you know, you can spend it well then. But with $50, you might make a few mistakes. However, it's an experience cost that will more than pay for itself in the days and months ahead. Okay, uh, my player collections also ask, ever thought about doing a reverse mailbag where you ask the question and the listeners provide the response? Um, I did something similar to this in 2020 and I called it Listener Forum. I think I ended up doing three or four of them. It, it was a lot of fun and I'm really appreciative of the people that helped me out. But, um, you know, it seems like for everyone that was a success on there, um, I had other people that didn't follow through with their commitment or I felt like I was just begging them to get their stuff in so I could edit the episode in time. And it was just very difficult to put together. So, um, you know, this was in the pre-Zoom era. So who knows? I might tweak the formula a bit and try it again someday. All right. Of course, this wouldn't be a listener mailbag without a couple of Taco Bell questions. So the first one comes from Eric, a.k.a. Slangandrocks.pc, who asked, do you have a complete set of all the quotes on Taco Bell sauce packets? I think this is going to come as a pretty big shock to some of you, but I'm not a sauce guy. I pretty much just eat stuff the way it's originally made. Uh, if I do make any modifications or want to change the sauce on the inside of something, I, I'll do that through the app. 
And speaking of the app, there's a Taco Bell subreddit where people will share their Taco Bell creations that they've customized using the app. I highly recommend checking that out if you have the time and if that's something you're into. Okay, next up, Brett from Stacking Slabs asks, if you could pair your favorite Taco Bell products with your favorite sets of all time, what would the pairings look like and why? This was actually kind of a tough one, but I'm going to give you two. I'm going to start by pairing the Beefy Fritos Burrito with Tops Total. Both of them cost a dollar in their heyday. Uh, There might be bigger, better things out there, but these things will give you the best bang for your buck. In fact, about a decade ago when I was really pinching pennies, I used to go to Taco Bell a couple nights a week and get full on two Beefy Fritos, and that was just $2.14 after tax. Now, if I was really hungry, I could up that to $3.21, but anyway, you get the idea. The final pairing I'm going to make is this, a Beef Chalupa Supreme, and I'm going to pair that with uh, Panini Court King's sets in general. If you take the time to make these things right, they're amazing. But when the shells don't get crisp, or you don't include game-dated memorabilia cards, or you start slapping sticker autos on canvas, you've got a lackluster product on your hands. All right, question number five. Jones underscore AF asks, what are your top five favorite Topps Chrome sets? Okay, so um, you guys know that I lean heavy into the 2000s, so I'm going to go with 2004, 2006, 2008, 2003, and then 1996. So I'm kind of biased toward the gold parallel, so that's why part of why I didn't feature some of the earlier sets as well. Okay, speaking of Topps Chrome, at Kirk Leftwich ask, what other Topps brands other than Chrome or Finest would you like to see back in basketball? Well, I suppose after today's Mail Day segment, I should probably say Contemporary Collection. I wouldn't be opposed to that, although I'd, I'd like to see them limit the number of Chromium products in the future. We're going to get Chromium fatigue. Um, so let me go on the cheaper side instead. Before I even knew they were getting the license back, I suggested they should make an unlicensed Topps Heritage set. Now, a license set would be even cooler, but, you know, whatever. Um, and I mentioned it a couple questions ago, but I wouldn't mind seeing Topps Total back. That set was only around in basketball for two years, but it gave us some cards to chase for the lesser-known guys, and we got coaches, we got mascots, and it's a set that the scalpers might actually leave on the shelves, too, because it's just not worth anything. Okay, next question. HOFBB players ask, When my son and I went to the 2020 Hall of Fame induction, we had the opportunity to meet some players like Magic Johnson, Rick Barry, and Isaiah Thomas. What are your three favorite in-person player interactions and why? Okay, this is a good question. The first two were really just autograph opportunities, but they stick out in my mind nonetheless. And um, this might surprise some of you, but there really aren't any sports collectors in my family. But um, there were sports fans, so we still ended up going to games. So sometime around 1997 or 1998, my uncle took me to Market Square Arena for a Pacers-Hornets game. And we got there early enough that he figured I might be able to get an autograph or two. That was something I'd never done before, so that was very exciting to me. And I ended up getting three. We were on the Hornets side, so I got Glenn Rice, David Wesley, and Bobby Phils, all on a Pacers program. I wish I had taken my cards with me, but I didn't know any better. Now, out of those three guys, Glenn Rice was definitely the most exciting at the time because he was the one that I knew the most about. 
And now years down the, lo- the road, I was happy to get Bobby Phil's because um, he died in a, a car crash in Charlotte in 2000. Um, but anyway, that was my first real autograph experience and everything really took off from there. Uh, the next time my uncle and I went to a game together, he took me to the Pacers side. So this would be the second interaction I'm going to talk about where I got Travis Best and Rick Smiths on my program. And, you know, I still was a rookie at this whole thing. So I used one of those flare felt pins instead of an actual Sharpie. So it pretty much all wore off, but the experience is still there in my mind. Uh, it was nice getting Travis Best, but it was Rick Smiths that really stood out to me. You know, obviously he towered over me. You know, I was nine or 10 years old. I was kind of on the side of the tunnel. And here was this 7-4 giant that was still hovering over me. So that was a pretty big deal. Maybe now you can see my why I might hoard some of those Smiths patches because they're very nostalgic for me. Uh, my favorite interaction, however, occurred when I was much older. And I'm pretty sure I've shared this one before, but when I lived in Charlotte, I went to a decent amount of Bobcats games and they never really had any national TV games. But at one point, the Heat were in town and they were riding a pretty big win streak. So that game got flexed to TV. And um, I always, you know, checked, hey, who's going to cover this game? I saw that ESPN was putting Hubie Brown on the game, and I wanted to meet him bad. So once I got inside the arena, I kind of scoped everything out. I saw him near one of the sidelines, so I thought I could get to him, but it was going to be a little bit tricky. Uh, I know there was an usher that blocked me at one point. I kind of went around them to the next section and convinced that usher to let me down there while the other usher was watching on. So a little bit risky, but anyway, I got there. I got Hubie's attention. That was the key thing. If I could get his attention to where he called me over, the ushers were kind of powerless. So I got to Hubie. I knew my window was relatively small. And uh, I asked a question that I thought might interest him. I said, when do you think George McGinnis will enter the Hall of Fame? And... um He thought that was kind of interesting, or at least he seemed intrigued by it. And he said, you know what? If I want to win one single game, I might choose Julius Irving. But if I need to win a three-game series, I want George McGinnis. And uh, after that, he signed a couple of Kentucky Colonels items that I had ready with me. And then we were both on our way. But it was an interaction that I'll definitely never forget. Okay, speaking of in-person interactions... Alex, a.k.a. Connell underscore collection, said, We love talking about in-person successes. What are a couple in-person failures that still sting? As a six-year-old, Bill Russell turned me down, and I had no idea how much that would kill me 24 years later. I shouldn't laugh at that, but um, I guess it makes sense why it took you so long to put Russell in your pyramid then, right? So, anyway, you know, I've, I've done a lot of autographing in the past. I don't get a chance to do much of it anymore, but... There's really only one opportunity that stings for me to this day. And I told the story in one of the first few episodes, but I'll summarize it here for you again. It was LeBron James, and he just doesn't sign stuff. I mean, that's just kind of a known thing. He's just not a signer. Well, I was at a Heat Bobcats game. Somehow I got in really early, and as I'm coming down the stairs by the tunnel, Dwayne Wade's walking toward me, and LeBron is behind him. So I furiously flipped through my book of cards. I found a Wade card. Wade signed it. Uh, You know, everything was going according to the plan that I pieced together in those few seconds. I went to turn to the LeBron card, and I just could not find it in my binder. And LeBron's just, he's sitting there 
He's standing there staring at me for what seems like an eternity, although it's not that long, but it was long enough to where I could have found the card. And um, I just fumbled around. And uh, he finally just shook his head and walked away. And looking back, you know, it's easy for me to think, oh, I should have had him sign my book. I should have had him sign my ticket. I should have had him sign something else. But, um, you know, it's hard to think that in the moment. I, I was kind of freaking out on the inside. And that was a major bummer to me. You know, I, I probably think about this a few times a month, which I don't know. You know, I, I, I can let it go, but it, it was still a big deal. And it was a decade ago. Um, I hadn't thought about it in a few weeks, though. So thanks, Alex. All right, next question. LJ and KG said, thoughts on PSA charging more to grade more valuable cards? You know, first off, keep in mind that I don't do a lot of grading. I don't have a lot of super valuable cards. So that's the perspective and that's the lens that I'm looking at this question through. Um, With that being said, I think it's a good thing that there's some sort of scale because if you want to operate at that level of the hobby, it's got to come at a cost. And PSA has been chipping away at this backlog, but they still have quite a bit of catching up to do. So I like the fact that you can still send in cards if you really need them graded. Uh, And then putting a hefty price tag on that seems to be the best way to sort of balance things out for now. So anyway, I hope I interpreted that question correctly. I know there were some charts and prices and new information that came out in the last week or so, uh, but I looked at it long enough to know, you know, that it was about grading and it really didn't apply to me much, so I kept scrolling. So anyway, um, I did want to treat that question seriously, though, so I hopefully I answered that with what you were looking for. All right, next question comes from the Northeastern correspondent S. Howley, a.k.a. Showley2003. He said, if someone's going to set up at a, as a seller at a local show, what's the one thing they should be sure to do and the one thing they should make sure they don't do? Well, I know there are some people out there that aren't going to agree with me on the first part, but sellers need to have prices displayed on their cards. Give me a starting point and we can go from there. Even if it is a little bit high, that's fine. Just give me a starting point. As for what a seller shouldn't do, uh, don't try to sell me every Goga Bataze hoops rookie in your inventory just because I'm wearing a Pacers hat. You know, I appreciate the fact that you're trying to help me. I'm definitely looking for Pacers, but I don't want everything from your spare parts bin. Okay, um, continuing this idea of shows here, Chris underscore HOJ, which I would say I'm in team, team Hoj, um, he said, recently you gave pointers for show etiquette. What about flipping the point of view? What tips would you give to show organizers? Now, I'll preface this by saying I've never organized a show, so these organizers already know a lot more than me. It's probably easier said than done, but here are four things that come to mind real quick. Number one, if you're piecing together a a decent-sized show in today's day and age, there absolutely has to be a trade night associated with it. Create an experience for attendees. Number two, budget the money to advertise the show. I know that, you know, that seems like common sense, but there are a lot of promoters out there that just think, you know, if you build it, they will come. Um, But make sponsored posts on Instagram and Facebook. Yes, a lot of people still use Facebook. You get a lot of traffic from that. A lot of people with money, right? So that's a key thing. Um, All right, number three, make sure vendors have a very clear understanding of where they can load and unload their stuff. Maybe even try and have some carts ready to help them out. Um, it seems like every new show that I've gone to, the trying to figure out how to 
um, get into the venue with my stuff is a struggle, and it shouldn't be. Just tell me ahead of time. Number four, try to add extra seating wherever there's room. I'd say buyers like it, sellers like it, significant others like it. I can't emphasize that enough. It's a win-win. All right, next question comes from Green underscore Stiller, who said two thoughts. Number one, you've given show tips. What about LCS tips? And then number two, any tips on finding release dates for pre-ultra-modern packs, which he describes as 90s and 2000s. Okay, Uh, local card shop tips. If it's your first time, Try to observe anyone that seems like they might be a regular customer. Watch how they interact with the owner. This lets you pick up on if the owner accepts offers or if they're willing to bundle stuff together. That's important information to know. Experience is a great teacher, but why not learn through somebody else if they're there and if they're going through it already? Um, and then if it's a small shop, take the time to go through every box if you can't find anything you really want, try to, you know, as a courtesy, buy something little or buy some supplies to help them out. As far as release dates goes, those can be pretty tough. Sometimes you can find them on some of the online retailers, um, on boxes that they've sold in the past, like DA Card World or Steel City. You won't be able to find them on their actual website from the main page, but you can search Google and it will kind of route you to their site where they used to be selling the box. Um, And then in other cases, you might be able to pinpoint a range using older Beckett's. I know I have a shelf full of of these older magazines, and they've been helpful at times. Okay, um, question 13 comes from Perimeter Collectibles, who I've run into a couple times at the Tampa Collectors Con. I really enjoyed talking to him, so thanks for submitting a question. He asked, What's the breaking point for when a player added to a dual or triple autograph becomes a net negative? For example, adding KG to MJ and LeBron uh, makes them less desirable, while adding KG to something like Elijah Wan and David Robinson would be seen positively. I like this question a lot, although I think you kind of answered it on your own. I would say that players have to all be in the same tier. So for Jordan and LeBron, it gets tricky adding someone else. I think you could justify Kobe. You know, I don't think there's any major objections to that, and I've seen triples of those players, um, although I don't really put them on that same level. You know, it just depends on what lens you're looking through. It wouldn't bother me to have a trio of them. And then also, you know, like I said, with, with the whole lens you're looking through thing, some of you might remember in 2002 when Jay Williams was a big deal. He was an Upper Deck exclusive, and they had him on a bunch of duos with Jordan and with Kobe. You know, it's funny to look at it now, but if you value trading card history and you collect it then, then you might still appreciate a card, um, you know, like that more than a lot of other people would. So, um, you know, there are people out there that like that kind of stuff. Similarly, I saw someone post a Lakers quad patch this week that had, I think it was Kobe, Kareem, Jerry West, and Andrew Bynum. And it killed me because half the comments were fixated on Bynum. Oh, Bynum ruins the card. Oh, why is Bynum on there? First off, like, don't downplay someone else's card when they're posting it. Um, And then second off, you know, Bynum was kind of a big deal at the time when that card was made. And then the, the whole purpose of the set was to include a younger player on there. Like the Celtics one has J.R. Giddens. So, you know, I had no issues with that card. I still have no issues with that card. It certainly didn't ruin it for me. Um, so long story short, I think in an optimal setting, guys should be paired by tier. 
but at the same time, I respect some of these cards that had some sort of rhyme or reason to them when they were originally released. You have to look at things in context. All right, number 14, smalltown.cards ask, um, because of your unrequited love of hoops, could you give us your top three hoops designs of all time, and why do the top three all have basketball floor incorporated into them? All right, well, I dubbed Jason as my official hoops correspondent a couple weeks ago, so this stupid question made me go back and look through all of the hoops designs. And uh, I tried to stick to my favorite three designs, even though there are some sets I like that didn't look so great. You know, for instance, I really like 2012. It's just nostalgic to me. I opened a lot of it. It was a good time when I was getting autographs. The set's kind of ugly, but I really like it. Now, as far as the ones I do like, though, and I think look good, 97 Hoops is my favorite by far. And uh, it probably it looks the most different of all the Hoops sets, too. It just screams 90s. Um, I like 1995. It's just primarily a photo and then a paintbrush style nameplate on the side. Um, as far as the modern releases go, I think I'd go with either 2016 or 2017, which do feature the floor design, as you noted. Um, and that's a good chance also here to give a shout out to Instagram user aharm82. Um, this week, Andrew sent me some of the international parallels from 2016 hoops that he got. Um, and those are a heck of a lot nicer than what we get here in the States. There's even some foil stuff there. So once again, thanks, Andrew, for sending those to me. Okay, the next question comes from Owen, a.k.a. Cardstocks, um, who also sent me something this week. He sent me a Joe Young Revolution Rookie Parallel, so thank you. Um, so Owen wrote, what are your thoughts on the WhatNot app? Uh-oh. Um, he said, of course, it's a good resource for breakers but with PC screen sharing and new features that could bring many different stream styles in the future, do you think the app will continue to see growth? Well, um, I talked a little about WhatNot before on here, and I want to say this up front. I've never downloaded the app and explored it for myself. So maybe before I you know, give any further input, maybe I should do that. But the reason I haven't is primarily because it's a direct result of being so turned off from what I've seen in person and screen capped on other people's stories. Um, I've been part of a, a two card shows that had major influence of, or uh, sponsorship from the app, and it was a lot of screaming, and in one instance, shirtless screaming, and I can't handle that. Um, I've also said before that I think the app probably has some redeeming qualities to it, so it's a shame that there's all this kind of noise associated with the app. But they have to fix the way it's being projected to the general public. At this point, I'm really not willing to wade through a sea of hobby thespians to get to the good stuff. So uh, my answer is yes. I think it will continue to see growth. And it could see a lot of growth if the substance is there and they can separate themselves from all the noise. More streaming, less screaming. That should be the reboot slogan. Next question comes from King 55 um, who I think I originally met on my YouTube channel. So it was nice that um, you submitted a question. Thank you. He said, I'm interested in the hobby's perceived rarity of inserts, specifically inserts from the 90s versus the rainbows or parallels that we have today. Are collectors placing too much value on these parallels? My intuition says that 90s inserts are way undervalued when compared to their rarity. Well, um, I think people were starting to shift to this way of thinking maybe a year ago, 
And, and I would say in general, the masses don't move that way until someone tells them to do so. For instance, some of the bigger investment YouTube channels spent um, all of that time telling people to buy slab base when deep down they probably understood that numbered stuff uh, was more limited. You know, after all, it's not rocket science, but their content didn't have to evolve in that way yet, so they kept that information under wraps. Only after people started thinking more on their own did the content evolve to stay one step ahead of them. So in, in that same time frame, I think a lot of the more seasoned collectors had already jumped on the 90s stuff, and it's hard for the influencers to push it too much because it's not as accessible. They need stuff that's liquid to an extent, so um, you know they have to have stuff their viewers can obtain. So anyway, I don't know. I kind of went off, off the course there, but those are just my thoughts. Uh, I try to be very careful when talking about what's overvalued or undervalued because eventually things flip and, and people get burnt. All right, next question comes from Jersey Beer. He said, as players change teams more, do pro uniforms matter a little less and collegiate values um, close the gap? Collegiate values, I'm sorry, close the gap a bit. Um, I don't know. Personally, I'm not a college collector. Stuff really doesn't appeal to me. Um, the NBA is making moves to slowly squeeze college ball out of the picture too. So I don't know if that... Um, puts them in a good spot as far as cards go. So I, I don't see them closing the gap anytime soon. The one thing to keep an eye on, though, and, and something that could move the, the needle a little bit, I haven't seen any talk of Fanatics acquiring the college licenses. So don't be surprised to see Panini hang on to those, and don't be surprised to see them really uh, up the quality of their college products as their NBA license comes to an end. Okay, question number 18 comes from Johnson EV Cards. He said, when it comes to game-dated memorabilia, do you put any value in the player's performance in that game, their team's performance, opponent played, etc.? If a player shot 5 for 25 in a loss, for example, could a relic card with memorabilia from that game suffer from that info, or is the ability to connect memorabilia to a specific date inherently positive? I would go with the, the uh, second part there. It's inherently positive. It's not going to prevent me from purchasing a card. You know, relatively speaking, there's so little game-dated stuff out there to begin with. I would take a Ben Simmons goose egg stat line relic over something that came straight from Dick's Sporting Goods. Um, however, though, I, I have a LeBron game-dated relic, I think, where he dropped 36 points. I have a Paul George patch from a game against the Jazz where he dropped 48 it is a nice little bonus, but it's not a deal breaker. Okay, question 19 comes from Family Sports Card Unboxing. He said, why are modern RPAs with unassociated material desired? 2020, 2021, 1-1, for example. Um, nice on-card autos, but material not associated with any player or event. Why don't people prefer the large shadow box auto out of the same serial number than smaller picture due to random fabric? Uh, I don't like these relics. In fact, I refer to them as props, but I can see a couple of reasons why someone might still pick one up. There are patch collectors that like continuity. You know, they'd rather have an unworn patch than no patch at all. Uh, some people view them like little pieces of art. And some of the companies in the 2000s even made the manufactured patches. I know Top still does with baseball. I think they look stupid, but some people love them. And um, maybe these basketball collectors view the 2020 rookie relics in a similar light. I will say, though, there is some good news, though. 
from what I have heard and what I read on the sell sheet, all relic cards in 2020, 2021 flawless are supposed to be game worn. So I am looking forward to that. All right. And finally, question number 20 comes from Timmy.Amos who asked, do you think photographers should get more credit? Some of the shots they take and put on cards are amazing. Yes, absolutely. As I mentioned earlier, I'm going to have a sports card photographer on the show soon. I'm thinking next week, probably next week's episode. So you want to stay tuned for that. And toward the end of our conversation, uh, when I talked with Brian, we talked about the fact that photography in itself is an art. And sometimes these card companies work really hard to cover that up. And it doesn't make any sense. You've already got the art there. You don't have to be artistic. So yes, I agree. Let the photos speak for themselves. You know, who knows? Maybe when Tops comes back to basketball, we'll even see the return of Stadium Club, which of course is a product that's known for its emphasis on photography. All right, well, there you have it. 20 questions in the books. I want to thank everyone that took the time to submit a question. Just a reminder, if you're not sick of hearing my voice by now, I answered another 20 questions on my YouTube channel, so make sure to check that out. Otherwise, if you want to reach out to me at some point during the week, you can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. <laughs>